Father, again, we praise you and thank you for an opportunity to be together. We thank you for your kindness and your, your love and your grace and your mercy found in Jesus Christ alone. We thank you for this opportunity to look into your word now, prepare our hearts that we would receive it as you desire and that you would do the work that you have ordained to bring forth by your spirit in us so that you would be glorified. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're diligent to read the scripture, and if you've read through the Bible, you'll know that in the Old Testament, false prophets infiltrated Israel. They infiltrated the nation of Israel and Judah. And in the Gospels, we see Jesus warning against false prophets. And it's in almost every New Testament book that we have warnings concerning false prophets and teachers. Jude speaks of certain people having crept in unnoticed, uh, turning the grace of God into licentiousness. We've seen in 2 Peter chapter 2 that false teachers will arise among you. Arise among you. And the Apostle Paul warned that evil men and imposters, this is 2,000 years ago, will proceed from bad to worse. Will proceed from bad to worse. Certainly in New Testament times there were many false teachers and false prophets, but now many years have gone by. And God's word is sure, as we see so clearly, that uh, as he predicted, there would be false teachers among you in the church. Well, if you watch certain TV shows, you look at certain churches, it can be discouraging to see how prevalent false teaching is in the Christian community. How prevalent bad doctrine is and things that are just not right and people listening and following those things. It can be discouraging to see that. So I believe that brings us to what we're going to see today. How can we keep from being discouraged by false teachers as we see the certainty of judgment for the ungodly? Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2 and we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 10. 2 Peter 2 verses 4 through 10. Now the context of 2 Peter is he is writing to believers of a like faith in Jesus Christ. And he's writing this simply to a point to the reality of that we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, our relationship with him through the precious and magnificent promises that he has given us in his word. Do you remember we saw in chapter 1 that we have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him, that's Jesus through his precious and magnificent promises. That's the word of God. And it's through his word that we grow in our relationship with him. And within that, he also calls us by faith to obey him in the, con- in the context of faith, that we as believers should be manifesting, if we have a real relationship with Jesus, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And if these things are ours and are increasing, we are neither useless or unfruitful in our relationship with Jesus. And then Peter says he is always ready to remind them of these things, to stir us up, that we would be able to call it to mind after he departed. And we know Peter is writing this letter. He's saying his departure is imminent. The Lord Jesus has made it known to him. And so having reminded them of the absolute reality and surety of the scriptures, we see that the written word is more sure than even experience, even genuine experience that Peter experienced. And we do beautifully to heed God's word, to pay attention. 
And we should know something first of all, the end of chapter 1, that no prophecy of Scripture or the written word is, becomes of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came about by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. It's God's word, so we do well to pay attention to it. And then in chapters 2 and 3 of Second Peter, we have Peter's warnings concerning those who would be a hindrance to us doing well, to us following what God says in his word by his spirit in the context of faith. And we saw so clearly that in this final letter, Peter was very concerned and gave warnings in great detail, which we're going to look at and be reminded of today. So how can we keep from being discouraged by false teachers Again, we're going to see the certainty of judgment for the ungodly and especially for false teachers. Now, last time we started in verse 1 of chapter 2, and we're going to start today in verse 4, but I want to read up through that. So join me in reading Second Peter chapter 1. We'll start at verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from, is from, from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And then we begin our passage. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example for those who would live ungodly thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, this, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority, Daring self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. You're saying, that's a lot. There's a lot of references there. Well, hopefully we'll be able to, to see what we need to see to understand the intent of what Peter, inspired by the Spirit, is writing here. And I believe the first point in how we can keep from being discouraged if we are believers is that we must understand that God has already demonstrated he knows how to hold the unrighteous or ungodly under punishment for their ultimate judgment. Notice our passage in verse 4 begins with the term for. It's an explanation. For if God did not spare angels. And then notice there's these ifs here. There's an if right there. For if. And then in verse 6, there's an if in italics. And then in verse 7, there's an if in italics. And if he rescued righteous law... The implication is these pieces are all one if statement. If this has happened, then we see in verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. <coughs> if God would punish angels, destroy the world, preserve Noah, reduce Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, and deliver Lot, then he already knows how, as we're going to see, and continues to know how to hold the wicked under punishment, but to deliver 
the righteous from temptation. That's the basic uh, context or or grammatical uh, structure of our passage today. So then our passage is one big if-then statement, which is an explanation of what has been said. Again, look at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, and then then ultimately. It's an explanation of something, right? It's an explanation. So what is he explaining here? You might remember what we saw in the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, which I just read. Remember, we saw that God's word is everything we need for our walk with Jesus Christ. If our hearts are right and the Spirit is working in our lives. We've been given everything we need for life and godliness. We have his precious and magnificent promises, so we do well to heed them because it's God's word brought forth by God, right? And then with that, we have a contrast in chapter 2. But in light of God's word, which is his word alone, which you do well to heed, it's one thing to hear it, it's another thing to obey it. By the way, there's a lot of people that know God's word and hear God's word all the time, but don't heed it in their hearts. Don't heed it in their hearts. The Pharisees knew it really well, but they didn't heed it. So we have a contrast here to heeding God's word, which is his word, verse chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. There's going to be bad guys, just like there were in Israel. Bad guys and gals. They're going to arise. False teachers. False teachers. And what are they going to do? Middle of verse 1, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. They're going to introduce these ruinous teachings, teachings that ruin your walk with Jesus. You're not going to go to hell if you're a believer, but your walk with Christ can be temporarily ruined by wrong teaching that, that gets you off of a dependence on Jesus Christ and a humble dependence and trust in him, allowing his word to work in your life. And he says, destructive heresies, even deny, even up to the point where they would deny the master who bought them. But they are bringing swift destruction upon themselves, right? Bringing swift destruction. And there's going to be damage in the church, in the church, verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. The term sensuality speaks of licentiousness. It's a license to sin. We always think of it sexually speaking, but it's not that way. It's a license not to forgive someone. It's a license to act differently than what God's word says. It's a license to sin. Certainly it includes sensuality, but they will introduce those things. And many will follow. We see that in churches these days. People who claim to follow Jesus Christ may be true believers, but just have no conviction of sin in their lives. They live a life that is useless and unfruitful for Jesus. Their walk is ruined because of these things. And the way of truth is going to be blasphemed, spoken against. The way of truth. And then in verse 3, notice what it says. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Hey, this is going to happen, it's saying. The term greed speaks of an intense, selfish desire for something, especially wealth, power, position, gratification, whatever it might be. These people desire these things, and they get it through ministering to people. That's what they get it from. They receive power, position, sensual gratification, whatever it might be. Position. They do it because they're greedy. In their greed, it says they will exploit you. The term exploit we saw last time means to do business. 
That's their business is to exploit you. And what will they exploit you with? False, the term plastos. We get our word plastic from molded words. They're going to take the scriptures. They're going to twist it and mold it to exploit you. That's what Peter is warning us about. Bad guys are going to be in the church. And we need to be on guard that we are not exploited by false words. Carried away by well-crafted words. Well-crafted words. As Peter would say in the end of this book, we should grow in the grace of knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ rather than being carried away by the air of unprincipled men. Chapter 3, verse 17. The reality is there are dangers to our walk with Jesus and they're in the church. In the church. There are those who will subvert, diminish, attack, lessen, dismiss, and twist and mock the word of God. We see that. They carefully craft their words to exploit you. They're evil people. But God doesn't miss a beat. Look at this passage here. The end of verse 3. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. It may appear that they are getting away with it. You look at the church these days and you go, oh man, they are getting away with it. It may appear that way, but they're not. And then our passage is an explanation of how God has never let anyone get away with sin, and he never will let them get away with sin, especially false teachers. That's what our passage is about. So notice verse 3. And they agreed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment is from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And here's the explanation that we're going to look at today. For... If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. For if God would do this, 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 and this, then of course he's going to take care of these false teachers and, and, and the ungodly, right? So we have three specific examples of God's previous judgment that he shows he knows how to deal with sin. And two examples of God delivering and preserving believers in the midst of those judgments. Two examples, but three. So we have the first example. If God had, com if God committed, verse four, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them into pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Angels are ministering servants. They are spirit beings. And we know from Revelation chapter 12 that when Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him. Those are fallen angels. Those are demons. They're fallen angels. And at this point, I believe our passage here alludes to back what Bob read in Genesis chapter 6. Alludes to a situation right before the fall. Right before the fall. Genesis 6 and Jude and 1 Peter also alludes to it in chapter 3. Now, something we need to recognize here as we look at this is that these demons spoken of here, they are demons. They've fallen that when they sinned, when they sinned. And they are a special group. They are a special group that are now, have been cast into hell, at least we'll see what that word says in a minute, committed them into pits of darkness reserved for judgment. This group of angels who sinned are in bondage right now. And there, as we see in the rest of Scripture, there are other fallen angels who are not in bondage. Remember the demon speaking to uh, Jesus? Have you come to torment us before the time, a son of God? He was free. 
awaiting his judgment. But there's a special group that sinned so horribly, God used them as an example of judgment. And that's what we're seeing here, that God does not let sin go by. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them through them into hell and committed them into pits of darkness reserved for judgment. There's two parallel statements. Uh, Cast them into hell and threw them into pits of darkness. Now, it's unfortunate that your Bibles translate this word hell here. Um, and you might have a note in your Bibles, but it is the, comes from the Greek word tartarus. Tartarus. Sounds like tartar sauce, right? Tartarus, right? Tartarus. The usual word in Scripture translated hell is Gehenna. And that speaks of a, of a garbage dump that was off the edge of Jerusalem that would be continually burning. They'd throw trash and, you know, dead stuff in there, you know? That's, that's what hell is like, right? And Jesus used that word to describe the place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. But here, this seems to speak of a place before their judgment. The term is Tartarus. And this term speaks of basically uh, a place of punishment and torment. Torment. Place of torment. And it appears to be a temporal place where these fallen demons who, who sinned are awaiting they were cast into their, in this place reserved for their future judgment. Their future judgment. The passage speaks of a smaller group within a larger group that sinned so heinously, God brought immediate consequences on them. Now, what is this line that this group of angels crossed? What is this line that caused God to throw them into Tartarus and to put them in pits, uh, those same parallel pits of darkness? Well, I believe it's the situation spoken of in Genesis chapter 6, which uh, Bob read earlier, in which the sons of God, that's a term used almost exclusively in the Old Testament of angels, by the way, in the Old Testament, cohabitated with the daughters of men, and the results were those freaks, the Nephilim. There's a lot of different views out there, and if I did have just Genesis, I wouldn't be confident in what I was saying, but we have this passage here in Jude, which I believe explain it. Now, you can get the message I preached in Genesis chapter 6, in which I go into this in detail. I'm not going to explain every aspect of this. Genesis 6, we do go into that. But here, there was a situation in which the sons of God came upon the daughters of men. Now, the strongest biblical evidence for what I believe is happening here and in our passages in the book of Jude. Turn to Jude. It's just up right before Revelation. Right before Revelation. Now, in the book of Jude, it's one chapter, and Jude is uh, writing that we would contend earnestly for the faith, ultimately because bad guys have crept in unnoticed, who turned the grace of God into licentiousness. The same stuff we're seeing in Second Peter. And he begins to affirm the reality of what God thinks of these wicked men by giving examples of past judgment, and he includes a description of what we're seeing in Second Peter. Jude, uh, verse 5. Now, I desire to remind you, that though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And then look at this. And angels who did not, what? Keep their own domain, but abandon their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. That's what he's talking about in our passage, right? That's what he's talking about. It's exactly what we see in Second Peter. 
There is a group of angels who are bound. Satan prowls about like a roaring lion. He's not bound right now, but these ones are bound. They abandoned their own domain. They did not, or they keep their own domain. They, they abandoned their proper abode. They crossed a line. And God, when they did so, put them under punishment. Now, what type of line did they cross? What boundary did they cross? Look at uh, verse 7. Just as, this is really important, just as it is saying, hey, I'm going to give an example of something that is just like what I just said. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since in the same way, listen to those terms, same way as these, these speaking of the angels, indulged in gross or immorality and went after strange flesh. If you know the situation of Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm not going to, I'll talk a little bit about it later because it comes up in our passage. But when the two angels came to, to take Lot out and his family, um, there were those wicked men of Sodom who wanted to do things with those angels, which were very bad. In the same way, it was this, this evil. Okay? I believe that, that speaks of indulging in gross immorality, going after strange flesh. Strange flesh. Jude verse 6, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. Uh, verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities around them, since they went in, in the same way, these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. We know the story. And exhibited as an example in undergoing punishment of eternal fire. So I believe we have evidence that the angels in Genesis chapter 6, who, who could take on the form of men, we see that in Genesis chapter 18, they actually ate with Lot, ate food with him in Genesis 19. They could take on that appearance of men. The, the, the bad demons, they, Genesis 6, crossed the line. And God, they, abandoned, they did not keep their domain, they abandoned their proper abode, and God took care of them immediately. He judged them. Now, we see that... Now, this is speculation on my part, but I'm just going to share my opinion. It's probably thought that as Satan wanted to, Satan wanted to corrupt the line of human beings, that he understood from what God had declared that through Eve's seed would come the Messiah. There would be one who would take on human flesh and be the Savior of the world. And it appears Satan tried to do something and he was condemned, or his angels who did it were condemned immediately. And I think actually within that, in 1 Peter chapter 3, when it speaks of Christ having died in the, in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. What was the proclamation? He's won. It is finished. Victorious. You lost. You lost. So with this in mind, God brought judgment immediately. Back to our passage in 2 Peter. Whether you understand what they did or you agree with what I share, that's not important. They crossed the line and God judged them. God judged them. Verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell or Tartarus, and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. They are being held for judgment and then their final, uh, their final punishment in the lake of fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels, by the way. So the point is, God has already demonstrated he will judge. God has already demonstrated in this example he will judge. And they're awaiting it. But there's more examples. Look at verse 5. 
and did not, and it's the, the subject is God, by the way. Now, the Greek, the Greek word has that subject inherent, he. And he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Chapter 2 of Second Peter, verse 5. Here, we see that God did not spare the ancient world. And notice how they're described in the end of the verse, world of the ungodly. You can read through Genesis 6, as Bob read earlier. You may or may not know the true story, but when God was finally fed up with the wickedness of man on earth, that the intent of their heart was continually evil, he was sorry that he made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart and said he would blot them out. But Noah found favor or grace. Noah found grace, favor, with God. So God was patient and commanded Noah to build an ark. And over 120 years, he did so obediently. And then the flood judgment came upon the earth and everyone other than Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives perished in the floodwaters. Everyone besides these eight persons. (coughs) God hates sin and he will judge. And we think because we get away with it, he's not going to judge. We think because people get away with it, he's not going to judge. He has given examples already that he knows how to and still knows how to, as we're going to see. Peter speaks of this later on in Second Peter chapter 3. He says, though through which the world, speaking of water, was at one time destroyed, being flooded with water. Mankind was eating and drinking and giving in marriage until the day Noah had entered the ark, and then the flood came and destroyed them all. Luke seventeen twenty-seven, verse five in Second Peter two, and he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. He didn't spare the ungodly in their sins, those who would not repent. By the way, Noah preached righteousness for 120 years they had a chance to respond to the truth and they did not they were ungodly they died in their sins they were unrighteous unrighteous noah preached righteousness you see you need righteousness to be into heaven you are unrighteous we are all unrighteous but god provides righteousness through faith in jesus christ the righteous if we're willing to trust him Notice in contrast, although he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Interesting wording here we're going to see. Because Noah is an example of an obedient believer. Noah was obedient. He suffered. No converts. He suffered. But he was obedient. He was preserved from the flood judgment. It means guarded, watched over. Later on, we're going to see Lot was delivered. He was snatched out, but Noah was preserved. Noah was preserved, a preacher of righteousness who found grace through faith in the seed of Eve who would come and bring forgiveness of sins, Jesus Christ. Noah did all the Lord commanded, and in his obedience, God used the very ark that he built to save him as a picture of what Christ does for us. When you believe in Jesus Christ, we are are saved from the judgment that will come for sin. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. Turn to Hebrews 11, 7. Hebrews 11, 7. By faith, 
Noah being warned by God about the things yet not seen. He was warned about judgment, by the way. And if you're not a believer, I'm warning you about judgment. Warned by God about the things not seen yet in reverence. That's in fear. In reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Noah is an example of obedient faith, a preacher of righteousness, built the ark for 120 years, and God brought about then the destruction upon the entire earth, but preserved Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. God guarded over him. He protected Noah from his judgment. So we have another example. If God would destroy angels, not destroy, but put them in immediate punishment for their ultimate judgment... If God would destroy the whole world of the ungodly, bring about a worldwide flood because of their sin, but preserve Noah. If he would do that, then, verse 9, the Lord knows, and we're going to see in a minute, this word knows speaks of having known already, but it still affects you now. The Lord already knows how to do it, and he still knows, still knows how to rescue the godly from temptation or trials, as we're going to see, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those, and that's going to speak of the false teachers. He's going to describe them in two ways, which will be the rest of the chapter. So the point is, based on God's previous actions concerning sin, worldwide flood, preserving Noah, we must recognize the Lord knows how to rescue the godly, but to keep the unrighteous under punishment. The Lord knows how to do it. They're not getting away with anything. Their judgment is not idle. It's not idle. And then notice we have a third example, verse uh, 6. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. Remember Lot, Abraham's nephew. See, he's a believer here. Lot made systematic compromises to follow what he desired by what he looked at. And he found himself in a place where he benefited, worldly speaking, he was sitting at the gates. But internally, because he was a believer, he was tormented. And God had to deliver him out of that area. Remember what happened in Genesis 19, where two angels doing the Lord's bidding came to Sodom and met Lot. And they wanted to sleep in the square. And I'm not going to read, you can read Genesis 19 later. And Lot said, no, come to my house. Because he knew what the people there were like. Obviously, they were tormenting his soul, their actions, right? He knew what they were like. And then the wicked men and evil men of Sodom tried to bash down the door to get at those angels to get strange flesh, as we saw in Jude. And then these wicked men wearied themselves, being blinded even to get to them. Then actually turn to Genesis 19. Turn to Genesis 19. We're going to look at verse 12. And by the way, if you read back in Genesis 18, Lot was interceding for for um, excuse me noah was not noah abraham was interceding for lot he was he god had made it clear he's going to destroy sodom and abraham was interceding for him and god answers his prayer by the way genesis chapter 19 verse 12 then the man said to lot these men they, they actually it says earlier that they're angels but they're in the form of men okay then the men said to lot whom else do you have here a son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whoever you have in the city, bring them out of this place. 
for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become great, so great before the Lord, the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Their sin is so bad. God has sent these angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot went out to speak to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters. And he said, up, get out of this place for the Lord is going, will destroy the city. But he appeared to the sons-in-law to be jesting. Verse 15. And when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Now, by the way, notice there's such a difference with Abraham, or not Abraham, but uh, Noah's family, they all got delivered, right? Lot's family had some issues that we're going to see, especially his wife. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. And it came about when they had brought him outside that one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. And you can read what happens next, but go down to verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife, that's speaking of Lot's wife, from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he saw and behold the smoke of the land ascending like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst out of the midst of the, of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Back in our passage. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, reducing them to ashes, he destroyed them and the people, reducing it to ashes, having made them an example for those who would live ungodly thereafter. Guess what? The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of God that if you do not have your sins forgiven, your lot is the same. An example for those who would live ungodly thereafter. God's direct judgment upon those cities. Those cities. God condemned them to destruction, reducing them to ashes. You see, guess what? If you don't have your sins forgiven as evidenced by the fact you are living in an ungodly life, your fate is the same. It's judgment. God has made them an example for all who would live ungodly thereafter. That's you if you have not been saved. You may think God's judgment's not coming, but he's already proved that it has come. It's already come in certain situations as an evidence that he will judge. God hates sin. He will judge sin. And he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, but yet he rescued Lot. And notice the character of Lot and the insides of Lot is described here. Again, verse 7, And if he rescued righteous Lot, verse 7, if he rescued, now this word rescued means delivered, delivered. He wasn't preserved like Noah. He was delivered. Notice what it says. Righteous Lot. Well, Lot was kind of sinful, I thought. Boy, if I didn't have this passage, I think Lot was not a believer, right? You look at his actions, right? But you see here, righteous Lot. And here's the difference. Oppressed 
by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. And then there's an explanation. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, again, knows the preacher of righteousness, Lot here is a righteous man, while living among them, that was the problem, by the way, felt his righteous, again, righteous soul, tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. You might remember Lot was Abraham's nephew, and Abraham had been interceding for him. Lot was a true believer, as we see here, who made very bad choices. He followed his desires and suffered the consequences for it. But it's very interesting what our passage says, that he was oppressed, oppressed by the sensual conduct of of unprincipled men. He was oppressed. Now we have, again, God rescuing him. The difference between Noah and Lot here. But here, Noah is delivered, or Lot is delivered, not, not preserved. He is dragged out by the angels. And notice this, the term oppressed. The term means worn down, worn down. He was worn down by the sensual conduct, the licentiousness, same word, speaks of immorality, of lawless men. For by what he saw and heard, this righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day. That's torture. He was tortured. True believers are never happy in the midst of their sin. His soul was tortured, tortured by their lawless deeds. Yet he still was there, right? And God had to drag him out before he destroyed them. There's going to be some believers maybe here or other that are going to be like that too. You're a believer in Jesus Christ, but yet you've yielded and you are immersed in the world and you hate what they're doing, but you still like something about it. You're tortured by it, but you're still there. Don't be like Lot. Be like Noah. So here, by what he heard and saw, the righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day. You see, Lot had believed in the seed of Abraham, which would come, Jesus Christ. And you see, unrighteous man, when we believe in righteous Jesus Christ, we receive his righteousness. Lot is righteous, and God delivered him. God delivered him. The point here is God delivers true believers from judgment. God delivers true believers from judgment. No matter where you are on the scale. Now, there are consequences to how you live. Some of you might be preserved as you obey God. Some might be snatched out and delivered like Lot. Judgment does come for sin. So then, if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day. Now, I would say, if he didn't feel his soul tormented day after day, maybe he wasn't a believer, but here we see he was. Now, if you can live among sinful men and just not have a conviction at all, I would question whether you're saved or not. Lot was tormented. He was a worldly believer, but he was tormented. He was tormented. Felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Then, that's what God does. He rescues and brings judgment also upon the unrighteous. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires. Folks, we need to know that God 
has already punished some as examples, then he does know still how to keep the ungodly under punishment and to rescue the godly. He's going to punish those who are in their sins. If you never repent, you are being kept for judgment. Especially false teachers. Especially, as we're going to see. They're not getting away with anything. Notice, based on God's past judgment, future deliverance for the righteous and judgment for the unrighteous is assured. Again, verse 7. Then, or verse 9. Then, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Simple statement. If God would do this, bring judgment on these three situations, but deliver those godly men, then he knows how to deliver the righteous and keep the unrighteous under punishment. And I mentioned this earlier. The, the, the English translation doesn't give us the full, the full breadth and width of the way this word is in Greek. Then the Lord knows, but it's, it's really in a tense that means he's already knows, it's already a done deal, and that same knowledge affects now. He has already known how to do this as he's proved it, and he still knows how to do it. It's no big deal. God knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and then keep the unrighteous under punishment. Now, it's kind of interesting. As I look at this, this term temptation doesn't seem to jive with the issue of being delivered from judgment, Right? You've got Noah being delivered from judgment. You've got Lot being delivered from judgment. And he says, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly from temptation. That kind of throws me off a little bit. What does he mean here? Well, there's a few different words for temptation, but uh, we think of temptation as enticement to sin, and that's certainly true. But this word here, the Greek word parismos, speaks of trials and testing, which certainly can become temptation. But it's often translated trials and testing. A trial and test can be tempting. And so how does this fit into our passage? We've got to look at the contrast. Keeping the godly from trials and the unrighteous under punishment. Contrast, right? That helps us gain understanding. The unrighteous are being kept under punishment for the day of judgment. The godly are being rescued from, I think, trials and testing, which tempt. And you say, I still don't get it. Well, look back at 1 Peter chapter 4. Remember that true believers are going to be tested and go through trials. This life is one big, difficult test and trial until we get to glory. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. The Lord's going to deliver us from this, by the way. He's going to. He knows how to do it. You're going to make it if you're a true believer. Even though it's difficult now, life is hard. There's trials like you wouldn't believe. You're going to be delivered. He knows how to do it. You're going to make it to heaven. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, verse 16 of chapter 4, 1 Peter, let him not feel ashamed. By that name, let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. God, And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if it is with difficulty, the righteous is saved. It's a tough road to glory, folks. It's a tough road. It was tough for Noah, and by Lot's own sin, it was tough for Lot, right? It's a tough road. What about Acts chapter 14? Turn to Acts chapter 14. I think he's talking about this life as a whole as a difficult, tempting trial. He knows how to deliver us to glory. 
and keep the bad guys under punishment till their, till their, till their uh, judgment. Acts 14, verse 21. And after they preached the gospel to the city, they had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And then look at verse 22 of Acts 14. Strengthening the souls. That's the inner man. That's not the outer man. That's the inner man. Of the disciples. Encouraging them to continue in the faith. We walk by faith, not by sight, right? If you're a true believer. Saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It is a difficult road to heaven. It's not that you're not going to make it. But if you're a true believer, it is difficult. It is difficult. But the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And notice back in our passage, in contrast. In contrast. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Nothing has passed by God. Sinners will be judged just as he has in the past. Sin will be dealt with just as it has in the past. Believers will be delivered because they are righteous in Jesus Christ. You see, God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. The immoral people, the ungodly of the world, the angels who sinned. You see, the issue is righteousness or unrighteousness. You see, God is going to punish the unrighteous. And all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, not even one. Romans chapter 3. If you think you're righteous without Jesus Christ, you're fooling yourself. You're unrighteous. The wages of sin is death. But God is gracious. He sent his son to die for our sins. The just or righteous for the unjust. Jesus Christ, the sinless, sinless, spotless Lamb of God, came. He bore our sins in His body on the cross. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. And if you are willing to humble yourself, repent and turn to Jesus and cry out for salvation, you call upon Him, He will save you and you will receive His righteousness and you will be a righteous man, woman, or child. And you will be delivered. You will be delivered by God from judgment. God knows how to deliver the godly, rescue them from trials or temptation, how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. A few verses as we finish up here on the day of judgment. We know in Hebrews 9.27 is appointed man once to die and then the judgment. Then turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10. There is a day of judgment. There's a specific time in which judgment will come. There is a day of judgment. He's keeping these people who were sinned under punishment until that day of judgment, and then there is their final punishment. Those people and angels. Matthew chapter 10, verse 14. And this is when Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He sent them out, the 70 sent, sent, or the sent disciples out. And he said, Whoever does not receive you, not heed your words, as you go out of that house, the city, shake off the dust off your feet. He says, don't run after them. Shake the dust off your feet. He says, truly I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment. There's a day of judgment. Go up to Matthew chapter 11, another chapter up, verse 20. Day of judgment, Jesus says. Matthew 11:20. Then he began to approach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not what? 
repent. Woe to you, Corazon, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had been occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment. One more chapter in Matthew, turn to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 35. This is a day of judgment. Every word, every action, everything you will be held accountable for. And I praise the Lord, my sins are covered. That I'm forgiven, that I'm righteous, because I'm not going to be judged in that way. Praise the Lord. I pray for you too. Matthew 12, verse 35. The good man out of the good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you that every careless word men shall speak, mm, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. There's a day of judgment. Ecclesiastes, uh, the conclusion that Solomon brings after everything, all of his adventures in sin, the conclusion he brings, when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments, for this applies to every person. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. For God will bring every act into judgment Everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. Turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. There's a day of judgment. And if you do not repent of your sins and trust in Christ, you are kept under judgment for that time. Kept under punishment. God knows how to keep you there for your final judgment. You're not going to get away with anything. But he doesn't want you to perish, rather that you'd be saved. Acts 17.30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to who? To men that all everywhere. This is God is declaring to everyone everywhere, and that includes everyone in this room right now, that everywhere should repent. Repent is, is acknowledging my sinfulness. I realize I'm a sinner. I'm turning to God for, for salvation. I turn. I realize I, I am a sinner. I understand that, and I turn to God for salvation. Because he has fixed a day in which he will what? A day, Right? in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There's a, there's a judgment day. And you can read Hebrews 10 on your own, but 10, 26 to 31, there is a judgment day. It is a terrifying hand thing to fall into the hands of a living God. There's a judgment. And there is a final judgment in Revelation chapter 20. There's a great white throne judgment where everyone who has rejected Christ will be judged for their deeds and after being judged for their deeds will be thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20. Some of you have heard much about Christ. You've heard much about Christ today. You've heard much about your sin. I exhort you to repent before it's too late. You may think you're on your way to heaven, but you're playing games with God. You don't like his message because it calls you to forsake your sin and to turn to Jesus. But if you don't repent, you will find yourself in Hades and then hell. Cry out to God, help me. Help me see myself rightly. Help me in my unbelief. Help me to see what your son did for me. Cry out for salvation. Back to our passage and let's finish up. Back in Second uh, Peter 2. Then the Lord knows how to rescue or, or deliver the godly from trials we're going to make it, brothers and sisters. We're going to make it, right? 
And to keep, and the unrighteous, guess what? They're not going to make it. They're not going to make it. And to keep or hold the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. That's what he's doing with the fallen angels who sin, the entire world of the ungodly apart from Noah and his family, and Sodom and Gomorrah, and what he will do with the ungodly, especially false teachers. And that's the point of this. Look at, uh, I'm going to read through verse 9 to 10, and then we're just going to finish up, because actually we're going to look at verse 10 more in depth next time. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation or trials to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. This is going to be helpful for understanding Second Peter 2, because the rest of the chapter is about those two things. Those are the two characteristics of false teachers. They are fleshly, and they despise authority, God's authority. They despise authorities. Those are the two things. They're not going to get away with it. They're not going to get away with it. Especially those who are this wicked, who would do this, who would entice people, who would introduce heresies secretly, who would exploit you with false words, all for these motives. They're not going to get away with anything. So my question to you is, how can we be encouraged when we see so much false teaching out there? Well, I hope the answer is obvious. God has judged sin, and he will judge sin and sinners. And these false teachers are not going to get away with it. So how does it apply to us? First and foremost, we must understand God will judge sinners, those who are unrighteous. Anyone who has not received the righteousness of Jesus as a free gift through faith in him, you are in terrible danger. God, there is a day of judgment. You're in terrible danger. And if you die today, you're on your way to judgment. There's no changing it. Pointed man wants to die, and then the day of judgment is next for you. Not good. God will keep you under punishment until that day. He knows how to do it, and he's done it. He still knows how. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who made him know, he who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, made him to be sin on our behalf, put our sins on him, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You need righteousness, and Jesus provides it through faith. Turn to Jesus. What about us believers? Well, obviously the primary application is, don't fret, God's got it under control. You're going to make it to eternity. You're going to make it through this trial, time of trials until glory. You're going to make it. God knows how to rescue you, to deliver you from trials and temptations that come with being a true believer in Jesus Christ. And those bad guys, they're not going to make it. Especially the bad guys. They're not going to make it. Don't fret. God has it under control, although it looks like it isn't. He hasn't missed a beat. And then lastly, an application. You can go the way, a believer of Noah, you can go the way of Lot. You can go the way of Noah in obeying the Lord by faith, trusting him. No results. He was mocked the whole time. But God, God protected him. God, God watched over him. God delivered him in that sense. You can go the way of Lot. Some of you today might be like Lot. You are true believers. You have a righteous soul, but you're being tormented by the sin of those you dwell with and hang around with. I would encourage you to make decisions to be separate 
I'm not saying be unkind. I'm not saying be ungodly. I'm saying remove yourself from the midst of that sin. And if you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Lord says in 6 and 7, He will be your God and you'll be His people. Walk with Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this warning and encouragement. I pray for the unrighteous here today that they will receive your righteousness through Jesus Christ. They will humbly cry out to Jesus, Save me, Lord Jesus. I am unrighteous. Save me. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are saved that we would not be like Lot, that we would not need to be snatched to glory having been so immersed in wickedness, having been tormented during this life because of sin that we placed ourselves around. May we be separate from that sin and those sinners. And Lord, for those of us that are following you, Lord God, I pray that we be encouraged, that you have it all under control, that these difficulties, these tribulations, which are many, that you will deliver us from these things unto your heavenly kingdom. We will make it to glory because of Jesus. I thank you for your son Jesus in whom all salvation, any salvation is possible, only through him. We pray in his name.